Uh, here in chapter 2, you go, why are we spending so much time on chapter 2? It's, it's just Paul going, hey, I'm sincere. Well, it's because we need to know what sincerity looks like. We need to be reminded of the importance of having pure motivation with our life, our ministry, our, our devotional life, our, our prayer life, with everything, that everything that we do must be sincere. Uh, the last thing that we need to continue in is false Christianity or just going through the motions of what we would consider to do the, the right thing, right? What is our motivation behind it? You can do all the right things, and with the wrong motive, the right thing means nothing, right? It just becomes wood, hay, and stubble. The motivation matters. The why matters just as much as the what and the how, all right? Let's look here, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in, uh, in our God to speak unto you the gospel with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but was as, were, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. Even so, we speak not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither is at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Here we're going to pick up in verse 4. Essentially the first few verses were, were this. Paul says, don't you remember that I came to you and preached the gospel and it was not in vain? As a matter of fact, that idea of vain is that of, of empty or powerless. He had just said in chapter 1, verse number uh, 5, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power. And whose power? Paul's power? Nope. How about in Timothy's power? Not his. How about Silas's power? Not his either. And whose? He says, in the Holy Ghost. And in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And then he says, and you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. You look at chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, and you can clearly tell that when they came to the church at Thessalonica and established that church through the preaching of the gospel of Christ, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and, and the forgiveness of sins through uh, repentance and faith alone, now what we find is that it was not in vain. People were saved. People were discipled. People were growing. And even more so, here's what was so important that shows it was not in vain, that they received the gospel when there was great affliction. This means this idea of that they were facing terrors and threatenings. They were facing persecutions. They were facing literally a, a fight. Uh, now we see that even today, that even here in somewhere like America where it's still free, where we still have the liberties in which we do, there is still yet a fight to see sinners saved. It is a great spiritual fight any time that a soul is saved, but as well that they had a physical fight on hand, if you will. Not that they were fighting with swords or fighting their enemies or fighting their persecutors, but rather that their persecutors were picking up the swords, that their persecutors were trying to quiet down and to snuff out the gospel and the preaching of it. But there is nothing that can ever stop the preaching of the gospel. There is nothing that can ever quench its power. There is nothing that can ever uh, uh, dim the light of the cross as it is preached by the Word of God and by the power of the Spirit of God. And so Paul shows here, we came, it was not in vain, and as he gets into verses 2 and 3, he talks about, uh, that, that the Lord gave boldness, that the, that the Lord uh, allowed them to do things with the right motivation. What had happened in this day and, and what was happening all around Paul is that there were plenty of other preachers. There was not just one religion. 
right? There was not just Christianity and then a couple of other things sprinkled in. There were still at this point countless of false religions, false teachers, false things, false doctrines. This is nothing new, right? The Bible says that there's nothing new under the sun. False teaching has been happening since the very uh, time of the Garden of Eden, right? The, the first false teacher was the devil himself. Did God really say? Right? Every false teacher will say that. Their message is not new or different. It is always the same. Did God really say? Wherever you find false teaching or false doctrine, you will find one common denominator, and that is a denial of Scripture. Now, it does not mean that they deny all of Scripture, but to deny some, in my opinion, is to deny all. Uh, to not believe or to not hold to what the Bible clearly has in black and white, both literally and spiritually, it is to, to show that you don't probably you may not know the God of the Bible, or certainly at least that you want to have your own version, right? Now, God has spoken. What God says matters. Because this alone is not just our final authority, it is our only authority. Right? Not even church polity and procedures. Those are needed today because of taxes and, and people who come in and out and things of that nature and how to run uh, certain business meetings or, or how to go about certain things. You need some of that, right? Do we like it? No. <laughs> but do we need it? Yeah. But at the end of the day, all that matters, even for those things, how about even the way that you run your home, the way you, the way you live, the way you work, the way you do every part of your life must be founded upon the Word of God. If it is not founded upon Scripture, then it will have a false motivation. And a false motivation is side by side with a false message. It does not take far to lean into a false gospel. And it will begin with a heart that is false. It has wrong motives, wrong attitudes, wrong intentions. Paul defends here. I didn't come to you to try to uh, gain your affection or even your attention. I came to glorify God. I came not to build up my own reputation. I came not to build up my own followers. I came not to do any of those things. I came to preach Christ crucified. Now, all that, let's get to verse 4 here. As Paul keeps going on, he says, But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. You ever thought about verse, one, uh, verse 4 there, that first part? Look at that. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. If you and I would wake up with that on our mind, if you and I were to go to work the next day with that on our mind, if you and I, the next time that we looked at, at our children or grandchildren or that we looked at ministry or, or outreach or even a worship service, at the fact that God Himself has entrusted you with the gospel. That, that should make all the world of difference for us. To know that the Lord looks to you, an imperfect person, with the perfect message of the gospel. That should give us hope. But it should also bring us to a holy fear where we understand that God has placed upon us the greatest message that there ever has been or ever will be. And He has called not just pastors and, and evangelists and missionaries to go and to preach it, but to the very believer, every lay individual that has ever trusted Christ, God has entrusted you. He has saved you with the gospel, but He's entrusted you with that message to go and tell others. As we find in the early church, especially as you read the book of Acts, what we find is as persecution came, the gospel went out. It, it, it fanned the flames of the gospel, if you will. And who were the ones that carried the gospel? It was not so much as the apostles. 
Right? The apostles did a great and specific thing that God had ordained and set them aside. Literally, it's what the, the idea of apostle means, sent ones for a reason. Nevertheless, the ones that carried the gospel with them, who was it? The everyday, average, and persecuted believers. How about here in Thessalonica? He had just spent the last few verses of chapter 1 commending them about how it was their individual lives that they lived in Thessalonica as people came in and out of that city, that trading city, by the way. And so all the world is coming through Thessalonica. And it's the Thessalonian believers that the gospel is going forth and that folks have heard the message of the gospel throughout their whole region and have heard about the faithfulness of the Thessalonians. Praise the Lord for such. In verse 4, we see that Paul defends the ministry by showing that all preaching is for God and that it is God who knows the motive of every man. God is the one that entrusts us with the gospel. That should be my motivation every time I get to speak. It should be your motivation every time you get to speak, whether you're speaking to a crowd or to a coworker, whether you're speaking uh, to, to family or, or friends. Whoever you see, God has entrusted you with the gospel to tell them. God wants to use us. God desires to use us. It is in His plan to use us. And He has entrusted us. This is a privilege and an honor. We must never take this lightly. We must never forget who God is, who we are, and that even despite who we are, God says, you are the one I wish to use and entrust with the gospel. With, think about this. The gospel is not just some good news. It is the good news. It has eternal impact and eternal power. The very, think of it this way. As he says, as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, God has entrusted you with the message that is the very hinge for the salvation of sinners, for the eternal home of souls. God has entrusted us with something far greater than what we could ever imagine. We must never diminish the gospel, nor should we ever go, well, preaching the gospel or proclaiming the gospel is only for the professionals. My friends, there is no such thing as a professional. To be a professional Christian is probably to be a professional phony. We don't need professionals. We need real people who serve God with a genuine heart as Paul did. Now verse 4 here indicates that Paul was accused of seeking to please people rather than to please God. No doubt that rose from the fact that he preached the liberty of the gospel and the freedom of grace as against the slavery of legalism. What does religion preach today? It preaches works. It preaches law. It preaches do, do, do not. Look at what has been done and now you have freedom. Notice that. We, we see this strange paradox of the Christian life. I am both a slave to Christ, and yet I am free. But the two go hand in hand. I am now set free from my sin so that I can be a bondservant to Christ. That I can be no longer a slave to sin, but to serve a good and faithful master. And it's not that we have this some sort of slavery to the Lord of, of obligation, but rather that we can now freely obey because when we were and sin. We could not freely obey Him. Matter of fact, we didn't want to obey Him. We were enmity with God. We were enemies of the cross. We didn't want anything to do with being used of God or working for God. As a matter of fact, religion teaches quite the opposite. It is working one's way to get to a God that you don't even know, nor can you ever know in your works. Right? It is trying to build a tower to heaven. It is trying to build a stairway or a ladder. It is trying to, to build an elevator to take you up to the heavenly places of which you could never, ever reach. But Paul preaches freedom. 
The world preached the law. And not just the law of Moses, but they preached the laws in and of themselves. If you look at every other religion today, every pagan religion that is out there, including Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, uh, Roman Catholicism, right? we look at things that call themselves Christian, by the way, these folks identify with that, but they're preaching a law. How about this? We look at, at Islam, or we look at, at Hinduism, or Buddhism, we look at Taoism, we look at any of the uh, upcoming um, return of the pagan religions of, of that of many of the uh, Germanic and, and um, uh, Icelandic sort of uh, religions and, and cultic things. I found that they all do the same thing. They all preach that you are trapped and you must work your way to some form of heaven, if you will. You must work your way to God's status or perfection. We can never do such. They are entrapped by these things. And Paul and what he preaches as the Gospel, it frees us from those things. It frees us to live for the Lord. Now he says, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God which trieth our hearts. The very fact that God knows our hearts should be the very motivation for wanting to please Him alone. I would love, and as a pastor, just to be real and honest, I want y'all to like me. I mean, it'd be kind of nice, right? <laughs> I don't always succeed in that, right? I don't always like me. But I know that at the end of the day, I could spend all my time trying to please everybody in here. I wouldn't be able to please half of you. At the end of the day, all that matters, and that's no account, I'm not saying you're bad people, right? You're not. Only half of you. No, you're not. Think about this. You guys are good, fine, sweet folk. Praise the Lord for it. I'm thankful. There have been more blessings all my life, right? How much further do I need to go? I'll keep going if I got to. At the end of the day, all that matters, the world could be against us. As a matter of fact, it is against us. At the end of the day, the only one that matters that we please is the one that sits upon the throne of heaven. And this is not just for the pastor or the evangelist or the teacher or, or, or the minister of any sort. This is for you. Today, you might not be able to make yourself happy or the person in the pew next to you happy. If they're your spouse, try real hard. Maybe the person across the way or someone else that you serve with in ministry, maybe your coworkers, your family, your friends, whatever. But if you please the Lord, that's all that counts. And He sees your heart. He sees your motivation. As Jesus had said to the churches there in Revelation 2 and 3, I know thy works. That is a comforting thing and a convicting thing, all at the very same time. God has entrusted the perfect gospel to imperfect people to proclaim the truth to all who will hear it, and He sees the motivation of why we do it. I have to ask this self to myself many times. Do you want people to respond to the message so that you feel like you preached a good message or because you want God to move? Do we want people to join the church or to come forward or even just to fill up space in the pews because we want to feel good or because we want God to be glorified? The motivation must be God's glory. Now we find as well about how He tries the hearts. This is a, a pattern seen throughout much of the Scripture. I want to give you a verse here. You don't have to turn there. I'll do it for you. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, uh, verse number 10, tells us, I, the Lord, search the heart. Who's talking there? The Lord. That's right. You guys did it. <laughs> oh, Y'all quiet this morning. I, the Lord, search the heart. 
Who searches the heart? The Lord. He says, I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. God is the one who knows your heart. There might be others who are maybe in Thessalonica who are saying, you know, I think that Paul came just to boast of himself. I think that old Paul came just to get some more followers, to get some people to, to look to him. There might be plenty of people, especially the Jews at that time, were certainly doing that. They were the greatest enemy of that time. And he was a Jew of the Jews. Better than even they were at being Jewish. And he said, no, that matters. You could say what you want. The Lord knows my heart, and he knows theirs as well. The Lord knows both the persecuted and the persecutor. We can trust that God sees and will act justly because that is who he is and it's what he does. Morris writes, that God tests our hearts means that the preacher must be completely sincere. The verb tests is that the translated approved earlier in the verse, it signifies put to the test and thus approved by test. In the Bible, heart means the sum total of our inward dispositions, including the emotions, the intellect, and the will. It is not confined to the emotions as usually with us. Paul is saying that the whole of the motives and thoughts of the preacher are always open to God and further that his own preaching had been done in the full consciousness of of this fact. So let me ask us this morning, maybe to help us a little bit. Do we live as if the Lord sees our heart? I hope and pray that we all do. I, I, I desperately need that for my own ministry. We desperately need it in our homes, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our, our everything that we do. We need to live as if the Lord sees us because it's not as if he does or as if he can or as if he might. He does. It is a sobering thought, but yet a joyful thought because as the world looks to you and says how foolish you are for following Christ, as your family may reject you, as trials and tribulations come into your life, you can say with confidence that you are in Christ, that he is in you, and that you live like Paul to glorify him alone. Not for pleasing men, but the Lord. <clears throat> All that ultimately matters in the church life and in the Christian life is that we would seek to please God with a pure motive of faith. And remember this, it is not your work that pleases God. It's not. It's your faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, is what the Bible says. There are plenty of folks who work and work, God is not pleased. You say, well, is Christian work a bad thing? No, it's a good thing. But it's only Christian work if it's done with the right motive. You can do ministry, but with the wrong heart, the wrong motive, the wrong intention, a self-motive, even one that appears humble on the outside, it's worth nothing. It will do more harm than good to those who hear it and to yourself. The greatest thing that we can ever do is allow this double-edged sword of the Word of God and the Spirit of God who now indwells every saint of God to do the work that only those things can do. That double-edged sword of the Word that literally divides and cuts us and makes us bare naked is the idea of Hebrews before God. That there is everything laid open before Him. That we would make sure that the Lord would 
try our hearts and see if there be any wicked way or wicked thing in me. That the Lord would try us from the inside out and, and would refine us and would purify us. Because we're approaching revival and not to get all preachy in Sunday school, right? It's supposed to be teaching time, isn't it? Right? The greatest thing that could happen this week is that the Lord would refine and purify His church. Refining and purifying, though, often comes through fire. It is not one of ease from our end, but it is one that brings out the worth. It is one that brings out usefulness. That's what we need today. As we look in verse 5 now, he says, For neither at any time use we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. I love that little phrase right there in the middle of the verse, as ye know. He says, I'm telling you something that you already know. I'm having to defend myself from something that I've been accused of that you already know the truth. And then he says, not only in the middle of the verse, as you know, but he says, God's witness of that as well. You know, I know, God knows. That's a whole lot of knowing in it. That should give assurance to Paul. It gives assurance to us that the Lord knows and that if we do things with a right motive and a right attitude, it, at the end of the day, does not matter what a single soul would say against us. As a matter of fact, we can count it assured that when we do live rightly for the Lord, when we do have a right motivation, that there will be all the more people that come out of the woodworks to tell us how we don't. You ever hear about this when you share the gospel with somebody and they just go, well, I just think you're a hypocrite. I just think you're a bigot. That's how you know you're probably doing it with the right motive. Now, sometimes we're not, but you'll know the difference. God does. That should be the difference maker there. Now, as we look here at verse 5, Paul trusts that God is the witness of the sincerity of their preaching. The folks there and, and his accusers might believe that Paul came and used flattering words or that he used a cloak of covetousness. That is the idea of, of this. Flattering words. It is these flowery words, these things that are meant to only edify and to make them feel comfortable. These are sweet words. These are nice words. These are nice tones. Paul came preaching and smiling and, and making everyone just merry and glad everywhere that he went. Not so much. Normally it didn't take too long after Paul began preaching that people started picking up rocks or started pushing him out of the way or trying to get him in jail. Right? He certainly didn't come with words of flattery. Here, as one commentator puts it, Paul's preaching to the Thessalonians was not aimed at making a favorable impression on them. He asked them to remember how he spoke. He never wore a false face preaching to gain something for himself. That's the idea of this cloak uh, that he's talking about. A, a cloak of covetousness. Meaning that he was preaching, but yet covered up with this covetousness so that he wanted some sort of gain. Notice that when Paul was preaching, he doesn't talk a whole lot about to people anything other than uh, the gospel other than looking to Christ, other than being born again. He preaches nothing outside of the Scriptures. He sticks to what God has said. He sticks to thus saith the Lord as the prophets of old. He sticks to what works because only in the, only in the Word of God is the power of God. And in doing this, Paul trusts the power of the Gospel and the work of God through it. If anyone could have used good words and flattering words and flowery words and all sorts of words to convince people, it would have been Paul. Paul was no dummy. He was not from the backwoods. This was a man who was cultured. This was a man who knew both the Jewish and the Gentile world. 
This is a man who knew the law better than most folks in that world, perhaps even some of the top few percent, if you will, sat at the feet of Gamaliel, had what we would call maybe today at the equivalent, maybe do- several doctorate degrees it, 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 to some degree. He had been literally under the Word of God, under the Bible, under the, the Old Testament law since he was a child. More than likely had the vast majority of books of the Old Testament memorized. If anybody could convince a crowd of people or use words and vocabulary to, to draw people, it'd be him. He said, but I didn't come that way. He came and he preached. I got a pastor friend of mine in Danville and his, his other guys who help out a lot at the church ministry. He got a youth pastor and things. And his nickname for them is because, uh, his nickname from them has become straight pipe. <laughs> and just straight, straight down the pipe. That's it. That was Paul. That's what we need. Right? We don't need to try to beat around the bush or to, to water it down or to sugarcoat things. We need the gospel preached as it is because then there is power. Then there is effect. Our ministry and life as well, like verse 5, clearly shows that Paul is defending here, should never be one that seeks self-gain. No flattering words, no, no self-seeking, no self-gain, not in his ministry, nor should it be in ours. Verse number six. We should be able to finish this part. It says, Nor of men sought we glory. Didn't he say that already? I mean, pretty close. Why? Because this is what folks are thinking. This is the accusations against him. And he says, Once more, nor are we seeking anything, nor are we seeking glory for ourselves from it, neither of you. Right? We're not seeking it from people who are not you. We're not seeking it from you. He says we could be burdensome as the apostles of Christ, and they often were at times. Paul restates that the goal of their ministry and the goal of the gospel message itself is to be to the praise and glory of God. It is never to get the praise and glory of men, nor even of the church, nor even of the accusers to win them over. It is all to the glory of God. All of life the glory of God. Thomas writes, the world of Paul's time was filled with wandering philosophers, prophets of other religions, magicians, false prophets, and others seeking not only financial gain, but also the prestige of a good reputation. Divine approval, not public esteem, was what motivated Paul and his companions, whether in Thessalonica or elsewhere. If the preacher on TV has to spend more time telling you why you should send him money, probably all the more reason why you don't need to send him a dime. Maybe send him a strongly worded letter. <laughs> maybe Try one of those. Maybe give him a, a penny for your thoughts and maybe that's about it. What we see is that we live in a world much like Paul lived in. It's not so different. The difference now is we've got trains, planes, and automobiles, social media, and some technology that they didn't have, but the hearts of men were still the same. The hearts of men were still the same. They were still sinful. They were still looking for for works and religion. They were still looking for their own gain, their own glory. We find that it's not so different after all. Why? Because Paul was living in the end time too. Paul was living in the last of the last days too, as are we. And, And now with this, what we find is that as we see it in Paul's day, it ought to make us see it in our own day. It's all around us. All the more reason for us to live sincere lives. 
insincerity can never be real salt that purifies, that heals wounds, and that even adds flavor, nor can it be light that points to Christ in this world. Only sincerity, only pure in our motivation, pure in our message. All of these things. Sorensen writes here, Moreover, Paul continued noting that they never used flattery to connive, neither did they have a hidden agenda of covetousness. God was their witness. Neither did they seek the praise of men or were they financially burdensome to the Thessalonians. Right? He didn't come trying to be a burden to them saying, hey, I'm going to preach to you and also I'm going to need all your money. No. We don't find that. Matter of fact, much of Paul's life, he even spent working more than likely as a tent maker to, to gain approval and funds and, and others, many of which gave to him, to the ministry and to others. But Paul lived like we should live. He had open hands. Open hands can work. Open hands can receive from God, but open hands give right back, right? They don't keep it in their long. That's what our life should look like. That's a pure motivation. In short, Paul reminded them that they in no way were unseemly, inappropriate, conniving, or less than they purported to be. They knew it already, but he refreshed their memory. They were wavering, and Paul wished to rekindle their enthusiasm. As we bring this to a close this morning, three quick things, and this is what we need today. We need to make sure that we have a pure motivation. You already know what to do for the Lord. You already know how to do it. But why do we do it? That why matters at least just as much. Our motivation must be Christ, must be His glory alone. But as well, we must see that we preach a pure message. We must never water it down for it to be more palatable to the world because the carnal mind does not know the spiritual, nor can it, nor does it want it. We must preach Christ crucified unashamedly as Paul preached it, that He was unashamed of the Gospel of Christ for it is the power of God and salvation. To everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We must let the Gospel do what only the Gospel can do. We must let the Word of God do what only the Word of God can do. Let the message loose and let God work. And in this, what we'll find is that we will have a pure ministry. Every one of you today that is saved, how many of y'all are saved today? Alright, praise the Lord. Guess what? You have a ministry. You have a ministry. It may not look like mine. It may not look like your neighbors, but to have a pure ministry, that is what your life should look like. So today, may we ask ourselves, as we come to the time of close, and as we're preparing even for revival and preparing for, for preaching and worship today and fellowship and all these things, may the Lord search your heart, may we as well, and see, are we pure in these things? Let us pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this time. We're grateful for your faithfulness, your kindness to us. We pray, O oh Lord, that today that we would be pure in our desire to come before you, to worship you, to pray, to fellowship together, to, to be filled up, God, so that we might go out and be poured out for you as living sacrifice. God, I pray that you would help each soul today, prepare each one of us now, Lord, to worship you, to fellowship together, that you would give us a sweet spirit of unity today, and Lord, that you would protect your saints, protect our hearts, our minds, protect us from our flesh, protect us from this world and from the devil. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this time and we give it to you now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, we're taking a pause for the calls. We've got a men's prayer.